0: The scripture for today's sermon comes to us from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is God's word to us. Welcome to Frontline this morning. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, my name is Jeff Nine. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to, to meet you and, and shake your hand. And, um, and if you have any questions at all, maybe about the church, maybe about faith, uh, maybe about what we're going to talk about, which is going to be uh, interesting and beautiful and hard. Uh, and if there's questions emerge, we'd love to talk to you about them. And so, like, there's no, no question that, that scares us away. Um, let's, let's engage today with, um, with hearts waiting on the Spirit of God to speak to us. Okay? Before we get into this, I do, I do want to just bring us all in. Some of you are aware, and some of you are not. Um, this week, uh, Chad's mom, Gail, died after battling cancer for a while. Um, and so I, I want you to know because I want you to be praying with him, Chad. I stand with you. I love you. Um, I also want everybody to be aware like it's it's a hard thing to stand in. And so like let's give space where space is needed. Let's prayerfully consider, but let's be praying for the family. Um, Chad, you honored and served her well until the end. And um, so I'm gonna pray for them. I'm gonna pray for us. i want to pray for this morning. Um, The reason that we open up the Bible is because we need His wisdom to speak into moments that are hard to feel, explain, understand, or walk through. And so we need His guidance from Scripture to form us. So let's pray. God, would you be near? God, be near to the pockets as. They walk through this season Me, near to many friends in this room that are carrying a different, different struggles and different grieves and different challenges. God, we, we are not interested in an academic exercise this morning around Genesis. We are interested in you, sovereign God of the universe, the one who speaks and Saturn becomes Saturn. We need that God, you to speak to us, to form us to meet us, to change us. Would you speak to us today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last week, if you were not here, well, we started whether you were here or not, a new series going through Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and listen. Not because it was an incredible sermon, but because um, there's there's some setup work that we did that I think is going to help frame up our journey through Genesis. And so there's big questions. So our, 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 our goal last week was just to kind of give an overview of what this series is and why we're stepping into it. And then today, we're actually stepping into the text. And we're going to be working over the next 10 weeks through these 11 Chapters. Just as a quick reminder from last week, one of the things that we talked about was that Genesis was written to uh, the nation of Israel who was being malformed or deformed by cultural myths around them, things around them, stories around them that were telling them, this is what's real, this is what's not real, this is how you navigate life. Well, it's important that we recognize that they were being influenced, but it's really important for us to realize we are being, we are being malformed and deformed by the myths around us. They're different myths. They're, they're, they're radically different myths than what the Israel, ancient Israel was being formed by, but we have to recognize we are a formed and a deformed people in the way that we see the world, and we need God to bring clarity, to bring clarity and to bring truth as we saw last week, what we're going to see over chapters 1 to 11 is we're going to see God reveal himself. In other words, he's going to give us a theology. We're going to see God name us as humans. He's going to give us an anthropology. God is going to locate us by giving us a cosmology, and he's going to confront us, giving us a soteriology. Now, one of my seminary professors did uh, I, th- I think just did us a, a real service when he, he used this way of understanding. He says, hey, as you study the scripture, now we're in seminary here to try to nerd out and learn all the things that we can about theology in the Bible and try to figure out how to interpret. And we're all geeked out about this. And he goes, hey, I want to remind you, there's a simplicity on this side of complexity and there's a simplicity on that side of complexity. Now, just imagine the Trinity. Like, it's easy for me to go, well, there's one God and three persons. And if you think about it for like two minutes, you're like, oh, that's wait, what? You wonder and you you read the text and it tries to explain um, all uh, different aspects of how we see God and relate to God, and, and and you wander through all the difficulty, and in the end you actually can come to a simplicity, but it's not shallow simplicity. It's got some depth to it. You see what I'm saying? Another way to explain this is there was a way in which I understood. My wife's love for me on the day in which we were married. And then we've gone through 20 years of complexity, challenges. Some we saw coming, some we didn't see coming. And there's a simplicity that I understand that she loves me, but it's grounded in something really deep because we've gone through the complexity to get back to that point. Does that make sense? What what Genesis is doing is it's going to confront us with truths that in one sense are simple. God exists, nothing else does, until God speaks. But the implications, when you stop and navigate, what does it mean? And what is Genesis 1 saying? What is Genesis 2 saying? And how do I incorporate that with John 1 and Colossians 1? And how do I do all this? Then we get to the end and we go, I want to see a God of power. I want to see a God of good. That's what Genesis is going to present us with. But I mentioned the complexity between because there's work to do. And it's not work that we're only going to do over the next 10 weeks. This is a work that we get to do our entire lives. But there's a challenge in front of us this morning as we look at Genesis 1, and that's because in this room, we have people coming in from different postures, that have different postures regarding Genesis 1, and we have people coming in having different challenges. Some of you are convinced you know exactly what Genesis 1 is saying. Maybe you're right. Maybe you just think you are. I, I don't know, like, but you're convinced. You've, you've got it down. You've got charts. You can explain it. You know what this word means and this phrase means, and you feel very convinced. Some of you are just really conflicted. I mean, you've read this, and you've read, you know, you, you went through biology class and, in college, and how do I square these things? And then this person says this, and I don't really know. And then some of you are just confused, to, almost to a point of like, I don't even know how I would understand. So those are the different postures, but there's also different challenges. For some of us, the challenge is that we have become so overly familiar with this passage. That we're actually not reading it as if the first hearers would have, as the first uh, audience would have heard it. That we're so familiar with the passage that we've woven our interpretations of the text into the text itself, and we need to see it with fresh eyes. Some of us, the challenge is we haven't read it. I mean, maybe we read it. Maybe we did, or maybe we never have. Like, and I don't just mean read the words. I mean, like read it, sit in it, wrestled with it. So some of us, the challenges, we just haven't read it. And some of us, the challenges, we've dismissed it. We've been taught that whatever the interpretation is, it doesn't really have anything to do with things. And so we just dismiss it as irrelevant. You need to see its importance. Now, we can't remotely, remotely cover all the questions and all the the things that are going to emanate out of Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3. That's what we're covering today. So if you're like, he's going to have all the answers, no, I'm not. Um, We're not going to cover everything, but there are three main things I do think we need to look at this morning that I think will both help us as we wrestle with this text in the future, and I think will help us as we move forward in our series. I want us to look at what Genesis 1 is not saying, then I want to look at what Genesis 1 is saying, and then I want to ask this question, and this is the important one, why does what Genesis 1 says matter? Okay, you ready to go? I hope so. We got work to do. First off, we have some brush clearing to do. Because of those complexities that I mentioned, sometimes the challenge to interpreting a passage of Scripture is not actually in the passage itself, it's what we bring with us to the to the text. Does that make sense? So we bring assumptions, we bring things that we've been taught, that we've picked up along the way, um, and we bring that to the text. Maybe it's what we've been taught about Genesis, maybe it's about what we've been taught about science, maybe it's maybe it's something else, but we, we, we bring that to the text, and then we draw battle lines. We're like, hey, if you don't interpret Genesis 1 like this, then you're an enemy on the other side of the line. And Can, can we just lower the temp for just a minute? <laughs> Some of you are nervous about interpreting the text because you're afraid you're going to get something wrong and that somehow it's going to have profound implications for your salvation or your faith. And let me, again, I just, want to, I, I just want to lower the temp for just a minute and go, Genesis 1 matters and interpreting it rightly matters. Yes, but this is, you're not going to get to the gates of heaven and Peter's like, I got a quiz. Are you ready? Tell me about Genesis 1-1. What does it mean? Okay, that's not the kind of pressure. And sometimes we put that kind of pressure On this, in ways that are not helpful. So, what I want us to do is, I want us to be diligent, I want us to listen to the Spirit, and I want us to engage in community. So, as we get started, here's what I want to do I want to read a selection of Genesis 1 1 through 2 3. I'm not going to read every single verse in the middle of this, but I'm going to to select out the beginnings and endings of the different times that are talked about here because I want you to notice the pattern and the rhythm of the text. The pattern and the rhythm of the text it says this about the beginning in genesis 1 1 to 3 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters then it says of day one and god said let there be light and there was light and there was evening and there was morning the first day day two And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day, day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was a morning of the third day. Day four. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, listen to this, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God, God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things. I love that, and creeping things. And beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now be shocked by day seven. This, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested or finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There's a beauty to that passage Sometimes we have to slow down to see. The pattern, the rhythm, the cadence, is pulling us up into something bigger than a mere let me just tell you what started at the beginning. There's an invitation in the text into to things of prof- profound with profound implications that this text invites us into. But the reason this chapter is so hard to understand sometimes for us moderns is that we forget this basic principle regarding the scriptures. The Bible was written for us, as in it is God's word written to us. He knew we were going to read it. He knew it was going to be our life. He intended it for us. It was written for us. But listen, friends, it was not written to us. The book of Genesis is written by Moses to the, to the wandering people of Israel. They're not even a nation yet. Somewhere between Egypt and the promised land in the midst of the desert. It's in, this, it's in this time frame in which Moses is trying to set a foundation of understanding among the people of Israel to identify them and identify their God. Which means... He's speaking to an ancient Near Eastern people that have radically different understandings of both nature and the divine. They have radically different experiences in life. They speak in a language that we don't speak and we have to translate it multiple times and we're trying to figure out what does that word actually mean. They knew the idioms. They knew the phrases. They knew these things. We don't know them. So it's important to remember That the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. In other words, I know you have lots of questions that you want to ask Moses that he's not going to give you an answer to because that's not the question that was motivating this book. So let's not come with our understanding to the text. Let's let it shape our understanding. But let's not forget the Bible is our authority. It's God's revealed word to us. It's good for us. I also want to say this this the, the task of understanding the scriptures is for all of us not just for the scholars. I, I say that because sometimes you go I just I just don't know let's leave that to the to the people that that uh, that get paid to write big books that nobody reads. Like that there's a there's a lot of help. I got a lot of help this week from the scholars because <laughs> they can help us understand language and translation and ancient near eastern cultures and all these kinds of things. That that's helpful but but we are called to do the work as well. So I think it's important to recognize this, what questions Genesis 1 is not addressing. It is not speaking to the form or to the how and when questions that we bring to it. We bring questions to this text going, tell me how God created it and when he created it. Is the earth old? Is it young? Did he use evolution? Did he use something else? How did he do this? When did he do this? Let me just say this straight up. Genesis 1 says, not talking about that. Many of us have been so fixated on asking the the wrong questions of Genesis 1 that we've lost track of the right questions. We've been taught there's a battle between Bible and science, and we've seen these in conflict. And can I just say, that's not true. It's not true. We're going to talk a little bit about how we navigate through this, but I think there are three things that as we engage Genesis 1, and we're going to get to the text here in just a second, there are three things I think we need to avoid. The first is this. We need to avoid demanding that Genesis answer the questions that it isn't asking, we don't come to the text, I just said this, with our questions demanding answers, but when we do, look, when we try to do that, we end up taking these weird phrases and trying to add our meaning to it and attach it and build our systems and our graphs, and we try to try to pull something out of Genesis, and we actually will miss what it's trying to tell us. The first thing is that we need to avoid demanding Genesis to answer our questions, or answer the questions that it isn't asking. The second is that we need to avoid dismissing science as useless or bad. Now, I talked last week about one of the deforming myths in our day is scientism. And by that, what I mean is we think that the way to truth is science, we think that, that, the, mo- that the highest authority is, is what you can d- find in a lab. Can I just say that's patently false? Just ask a science 100 years ago how confident they were in the science that we now laugh at. And side note, that probably means that 100 years from now they're going to go, they were cute, they thought they knew. Science is not bad though. Science is a way of us understanding the world that God has created, and that's an important work. But we need to realize it's not this absolute authority. God's word is absolute. God is declaring what is true in His word to us there's a problem that often emerges sometimes in what 's called God of the gaps and i 've seen this lots of times where we try to we try to sneak like science can 't explain uh, how inter uh, interatomic uh, uh, particles are held together and we're like ah oh, it's, see it 's just God holding it together it's like i mean Yeah, yeah, God's God's sustaining all of it, but that doesn't actually mean that there's not a physical answer that he hasn't created something there. But we try to do this God in the gaps. We find a gap in science and we go, see, there's God. What happens when that gap does get filled with knowledge? Your argument evaporates. I'm just saying that's not a helpful approach. Our job is not to try to make the Bible and science fit. Our job is to understand what the scriptures are telling us. Here's Here's how John Walton says it. It's not therefore appropriate to construe science as the enemy of the faith or of the text. Interestingly, even as many evangelicals have adopted this sort of antagonism towards science, they have delivered the agenda of the text up over to scientific inquiry. It's not science that's the enemy. Listen to this. It's not science that's the enemy. It's naturalism. In other words, the problem is not that we're exploring God's good creation. It's that we think that that's what matters and that's the end of the story. And it's not. And third, we need to avoid making Genesis bow down to the demands of our scientific age. So, if Genesis is not asking the how, and the, when, the how and the when questions, then what questions is it addressing? And I think if we'll look at the text, we'll realize that what it's answering, the questions it's answering are the what and the why. In other words, Genesis 1 is not focused on method, explaining method. It's focused on explaining meaning. It's not focused on explaining method. It's focused on explaining meaning. Let me ask you this. What does it mean that Genesis says that God speaks and nothing gives way to everything? What does it mean That God takes a formless void and gives it order, structure, and form. What does it mean that man is made in the image of God? What does it mean, listen to this, what does it mean that God rests? The text is not telling us how he took a nap and for how long. It's trying to give meaning to what is true. To help us understand this. Again, Genesis is written to exilic Israel, both to inform them, because they're influenced by ancient Near Eastern understandings of the gods and the goddesses. So it's writing to inform them about who God really is, and it's also written to form them. You could say that Genesis 1 was the first counterformation guide. It's there to confront the myths of their day, and it exists to confront the myths in our day. So what is Genesis 1 saying? I want to talk about it in in terms of five movements and five implications. Five movements and five implications. First off, what Genesis is telling us is that there is a movement from nothing to something. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the focus is not when was the beginning. The focus is who's the source of everything out there? Who is the source? The second movement is the movement from chaos to order. Look at Genesis uh, 1, starting in verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. He gives he he moves he moves this from chaos to order. It is is what God is creating is a way of being that is sourced out of His wisdom and His goodness. It's not random. It's intentional. So we see the move in the text from chaos to order. Third, we see the movement from barrenness to fullness. I think this is a really important one to recognize. Like reading Genesis 1, you've got to read it in light of the entire Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were actually originally written as one book that were on five different scrolls. And so Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 to 11 is like the introduction to Genesis, and Genesis is the introduction to the Pentateuch. But what you recognize, particularly in Genesis, but you see it through the Pentateuch as well, is is this regular rhythm of barrenness giving way to fullness or to fruitfulness. So what you'll see in, in each of the patriarchs, in each of the families in Genesis, these are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph, when you look at these, at each, in each generation, you find wombs that won't give birth that open up to give birth to heirs. In other words, there's a barrenness that gives way to fullness. What you'll see repeated are these patterns in which Israel, the people of God, find themselves in famine, waiting for provision, or in a desert, waiting for the promised land, and that the movement is from barrenness, to fullness. Well, look what's happening in Genesis. It says that the, the, that the earth was formless and void, but look at verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now look, he's not done. We have barren land now. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its, their own kinds. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. From barrenness to fullness. Fourth, I want you to see in this text the move from realms to rulers. There's a well-documented, and if you stop and look at it, it's really obvious. It's right there on the text, that that there is a a sense in which days one, two, and three are paralleled with days four, five, and six. And you'll notice this in the text. Day one, God forms the space or the, 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 the arena of light and darkness. And in day four, he fills it with the sun and the moon. What you see in day two is he creates this separation between the seas and the air, and in day five, that parallels it, he gives fish and he gives birds. Well, look at day three, what does he create? He separates out the land and he fills it full of plants. Day six, he creates animals and he creates us. There's a parallel here, a beautiful symmetry of God creating realms and then filling those realms with things. But as, a, but as a book I was reading, this. The, no, actually it was a sermon by Tim Keller. He talked about if you look at the language, he's not just filling it with things. He's filling it with things and then giving rulers over it. The sun and the moon are, over, are supposed to rule over the day. The fish and the birds are supposed to multiply and be fruitful. And, and then when he creates humanity, he gives us both rule and a commission over all of it. So God takes the chaos and turns it to or he, he, he goes from, he takes nothing and creates something. He moves from chaos to order. He moves from barrenness to fullness. He moves from realms to rulers. Now let's look at the last. He moves from work to rest. Genesis 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth are finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finishes work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his work that he had done in creation. It's important to notice this is the one day in which there is no evening. In other words, we live right now in day seven. We, Hebrews, will even say we are invited into his rest. What does this mean? What does this mean for Sabbath? What does this mean for us? There are profound questions tied to those things, but I want you to see the move from work to rest. Now next week we're going to be diving deeper into the creation of humanity in Amago Day. So if you're like you didn't really give a lot of focus to those verses, well, that's because we're going to get to that. We got a whole week set aside for that next week. But what I do want to do is look at five implications. So if there are five movements in the text, I want to look at five implications of the text. The first is this. There is one God, not multiple gods. Now, for us, we're like, I mean, that, yeah, Jeff, that's... Kind of obvious? Well, it wasn't to Israel. They were surrounded by myths around them of all the gods and the goddesses. But actually, is it really that far off from us? I mean, yeah, many of us don't have, uh, have, have golden uh, figures in our, church, in, our, in our homes that we bow down to, but we have lots of gods. Lots of things that we think tell us what our meaning is, what our identity is, where we find value. There's one God. There's one God. He's eternal and uncreated. There's one God and he is unrivaled. The second thing, the second implication is that we are given a creator, not an assembly line worker. We're given a creator, not an assembly line worker. It is really important to understand this, that creation is not like God going around and scrounging trying to find some resources and put them together to build a robot he speaks and there's a milky way he's not he's not just working with what he was handed he creates it implications for this are profound third implication god is above not in he's above not in now here's why this matters there are a whole number of ways and I'm going to say um, theologies out there, Christian theologies that try to position the idea that somehow God is merged with his creation or so enmeshed in it that the creation itself is divine. That's not biblical. It's not true. The text here talks about the spirit of God hovering over the waters. He's not the waters. God is distinct from his creation. But he is, and he is sovereign over it. Third implica- or The fourth implication, God's work is intentional, not random. We must stand and re- remember that God is at work with precision and care. He's not haphazard. I don't just mean with creation, I mean with your lives. You see what I mean by implications? Like this touches on what it means to be human. Number five, creation itself, as God created, is good, not either evil or indifferent. I say this because we need to recognize that what's wrong with the world is not because there was some defect in God's planning. God didn't like build build a skyscraper and go, oops, didn't account for that. What's wrong in the world, we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, is the sin that we bring. That's what's wrong with the world. So those are five movements and five implications. But but I want to remind us, Genesis is not here simply to inform us It's here to form us. So I think it's really important for us to spend a little bit of time on this last question. Why does what Genesis 1 says matter? You see, Genesis 1 was written on purpose and for a purpose to deal with the big questions of life. It's not to answer all the questions you bring, but there are big questions that transcend one people in one time. So there were questions that the ancient Near Easterns would have had. There are questions that Israel would have had that Genesis didn't answer for them. And there are questions that we have of Genesis that it doesn't answer for us. What it does do is it ushers us into those kind of questions that transcend time and transcend context. Questions like, where do we come from? Who's in control? How do we know what good is? Is there meaning in the world? What is our purpose? Those are the kind of questions that Genesis is dealing with. So how do we respond? Again, I, I didn't answer a lot of your questions. I probably just created a lot more. You're welcome. Hey, and... Hey guys, we're going to be walking through Genesis for a while. And so I don't have all the answers either, but I have, I have studied a lot and thought a lot about it and I'll talk to you and we can talk, talk about these things. So let's, let's press in together and do this work together. But there are five things that I want us to do as we approach Genesis. I think this will give the, this, will help us understand the why this matters. The first way we need to respond to Genesis 1 is with marvel and wonder with marvel and wonder. Please don't read this book like some textbook that was foisted upon you by your geometry teacher. Let's not read this text as if somehow it's the schematics for something that we're trying to assemble, maybe furniture from Ikea. Lord, help us all. I want you to read this and be astonished at God's power, at God's goodness, and about God's nearness. I want you to be astonished. I want us to be astonished. I don't want you to be afraid of Genesis. I don't want you to be afraid of science. I don't want you to be afraid of the universe. I want you to behold the work of a good God and marvel. Because one of the reasons that Genesis 1 matters is for worship. He tells us what he tells us in order to lead us to worship. The second way I want us to respond is to receive to receive. In other words, we're not grasping. We're not reaching to the text and trying to pull out whatever we want out of the text. We're here hands open saying, Lord, what do you want to give me today? I want to receive. And you know what the text is going to lead us through is he's going to hand us an identity that he gave us, not that the world gave us. We want to receive his provision, the, the beauty in which it talks about the way he created the world in order to feed his creation. Chiefly, his crown of creation, humanity. He's a God who provides. He provides land for Israel. He provides covenant and promise. We also need to receive, so we need to receive our identity. We need to receive our provision, and we also need to receive the truth. He's speaking to us true things. We need to receive that. The third way we need to respond and why this matters is that we need to be a people that are cultivating, cultivating. You see, the commands, of, the, 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 the calling that God placed upon Adam in the text, and we'll look at this more over the next couple of weeks, is actually a calling to humanity. You see, you're actually, the, the purpose of your life is not to watch as much Netflix as you can before next Sunday. The purpose of your life is not to try to find, uh, to try to create your meaning and and suffuse life with meaning. The the purpose of your life is actually to hear what God calls us to and then step towards it. To step towards others with presence and grace and love. To protect those around us. Like this calling, this idea of, of protecting, to guard the creation is a way in which we need to exercise care and responsibility for the the, the domains that he has called us to. Don't throw your life away because you don't understand your purpose. Let's look at Genesis. Let's look at the Bible and go, God, what are you calling me to? I want to cultivate that. Let's cultivate that. The fourth response is to trust the reason what, what Genesis 1, the reason that it matters, what it says, is that it's teaching us about who God is and teaching us, ultimately, we can trust him. If you're looking for somebody who has the, the power and authority to intervene, guess what? God. If you're looking for the source of good in the world, how do I know what's right and what's wrong? How do I know what's good and beautiful and what's not? Look to God. In Genesis 1. God's not just powerful and good, he's present. See, 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 friends, our hope in this world is not in the hands of blind, indifferent, natural forces. Our hope in this life is not left to chance. We are in his good capable hands. The last thing we are called to do is to rest. I said this last week, and I want to bring it back up. Our hope is not in technique. Sometimes we, we approach this thing that like, I'll get, an, I'll, I'll, I'll get to a point of rest if I can figure out the, the hacks in life to do all the right things and get to a place where I can slow down. That's you trusting yourself, your own work, your own technique, In order to get there, what the Scripture is inviting us into is a God who rests that invites us to rest. So as we go through the rest of Genesis, I hope we're shocked, stunned, a little bit overwhelmed, and that we're drawn in to see God as He is. That we're drawn to see ourselves as he's created us. And we're drawn to see the world that he has called us into. So which of those five things do you feel the spirit of God leading you towards over the coming weeks? Do you need to grow in how you marvel? Do you need to grow in how you receive from him? Do you need to grow in how you trust him? Do you need to grow in how you cultivate Do you need to grow in how you rest? Let's not pursue Genesis just trying to fill our heads with things. Let's be formed by the word of God. Would you stand with me?